Hello, and welcome back to Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history without a spot of travel. I'm your host, Larissa, and in this episode, we will be looking at a rock star of Ukrainian pop folk music whose influence is still felt among Ukrainian circles to this day. Uh, But before we begin, let's have um, those introductions, shall we? I may swear in this episode, and if you are listening on Podcast Addict or Apple Podcasts, please leave a review or rate it. Uh, You can also find us on a number of streaming sites, including but not limited to Spotify, Google Podcast Breaker, and of course the website wanderingtheedge.net, where you can check out any of the previous sources and uh, episodes. And because we are at war with our shitty neighbor, travel to Ukraine isn't very well uh, advisable, so no travel info. But if I could, uh, I would probably, it would probably be to somewhere that like this um, artist of this episode has been to, like a resort somewhere in Ukraine or or something. I don't know. Uh, I didn't really give it much thought, obviously. Now, before we start, I want to just say that instead of my regular musical interlude, I will be playing a selection, uh, a selection of songs that I absolutely adore and love from this artist. Um, and starting with this little beauty. So I will be using all original songs by the one and only Volodymyr Ivasyuk. I wanted to use the remastered version of renowned Ukrainian singer Taras Chubai from his 2017 album called um, Nash Ivasyuk or R Ivasyuk, which you can find on Spotify or, or YouTube. Uh, but I couldn't buy the copyrights because, you know, I, I have no money. So we're going with the originals in this episode. Um, Voldemir Ivasyuk was born on March 4th, 1949 in a little town of Kitsman in the uh, Bukovina region of Western Ukraine. He was the first son of writer Mihailo Ivasyuk and his wife, Sofia, who was a principal of an eight-year rural school. He was technically their second, but they lost their first child, so Voldemir was seen as a godsend to them. Now, although Voldemir was almost blind due to some medical mishap um, at the maternity ward, he was described as basically a good kid, uh, attentive, cautious, but loved knowledge, music, and everything Ukrainian folk. At an early age, he began attending orchestra classes uh, for the local pioneers, which is like a communist scouting organization, which was led by Ivan Kovblik, a folk Bukovinian musician. At age five, he entered the Kitsman Music School, and his father had to come with him since he couldn't even write yet. He graduated from uh, all his educational institutions with honors, and math, physics, and humanities were actually very easy for him. But he loved to read, and this included Ukrainian and Russian classics, along with Shakespeare, Balzac, and Burns. He could also paint. He apparently made a portrait of Taras Shevchenko in the eighth grade, which was highly praised in the little village. His father believes that if he didn't find the violin, he would have actually been an artist instead. 
but violin he found and music held him captive. He was so good that his music teacher would take him on many local tours of the collective farms, which was so appreciated that collective farm workers actually gifted him a violin they bought from overseas. Obviously, shit wasn't all that great because, of course, the Soviet party had to get involved. So in April 1966, so when he was 17 and had about two months left to finish school, there was an incident with a bust of Lenin. So he was the best in his class, and um, his entitled Bukovina Ensemble, which he created, was singing the first songs he ever composed at some concert honoring the 25th anniversary of reunification of Bukovina with Soviet Ukraine. Anyway, the stupid bust fell and broke, and obviously Ivasyuk and four others were arrested and forced to clean the streets of Kidsman for 15 days, all for a stupid bust of stupid Lenin. His mother, Sophia, always claimed his innocence, but Voldemort took responsibility because he was a very good kid. She was summoned in front of the school director and the local party officials, but she stuck to her opinions and proclaimed, quote, I believe that my son could not have done anything wrong, end quote. She was also worried that her son's future was compromised because he was expelled from the Komsomol, which was like the pre-Soviet youth party organization. But his music saved him. Now, as his younger sister Helena describes, Voldemort was always interested in folk music, quote, Volodya loved literature, music, painting, and those who created them, but he treated the Ukrainian folk song with special respect. He said that this is a treasure in which the soul of the nation is stored. It is a fairy tale levada on which language is rampant. I remember that already in the eighth grade, my brother began to record folk art in Kitsman and nearby villages, following the example of his father, who collected fairy tales and legends, which were later published in three collections by the Karpata Publishing House. And while studying at a medical institute, then at a conservatory, Volodya continued to collect folklore. He often did not have enough time to put things in order. I then had to help. I reprinted folk songs from his notebooks, scattered pieces of paper, and deciphered his his tapes, end quote. He was so good that he was accepted into the Kiev Lysenko State Music Lyceum for musically gifted children, but had to decline due to his ill health and he remained in Kitsman. But he created the Bukovina Ensemble, which performed Ukrainian folk songs and his own creations like Lullaby for Oksanochka, which he wrote for his youngest sister, Oksana. It was through this ensemble that his popularity began as they were featured on radio and television. In 1966, the Ivasyuk family would move to Chernivtsev, as his father got a teaching position at the Bukovinian State Medical University and Voldemort got into the Chernivtsi State Medical Institute. But that little incident with that stupid Lenin bust got in the way again, and on his first day, he was actually expelled. The local party boss did, however, get him a job at a factory where he went on to lead the factory choir and even won awards for his poetry. A year later, he was reinstated back into the medical institute and became a member of the Trembita Ensemble, where he played violin. It was while in Chernivtsi that his first television appearance in 1968 
occurred during a Ukrainian TV program called Kamerton Dobroho Natroyu. I don't know what that means. During this appearance, he would make friends with the chief director, Vasil Silizinka, and sound engineer, Vasil um, Strahovich. And it was they who wanted him to perform his new songs live on air. This was September 13, 1970, and Voldemir Ivasyuk took the stage with Olena Kuznetsova at the Theater Square in central Chernivtsi and sang his two new songs, Chervona Ruta and Vodohrai. So it is quite honestly very difficult to explain to non-Ukrainians the importance of these two songs. If you get a bunch of Ukrainians in a group setting and someone starts singing one of these songs, we will all know the words and melody. These songs have now become ingrained into our souls and DNA. So Vodohrai is a song about a waterfall, one inspired by the Hook waterfall in the town of Kostiv in Ivano-Frankivsk Oblast. Ivasyuk didn't like it originally, and so he changed some words and voila, a hit was born. Although it was filled with water's descriptive nature, like, quote, uh, water flows, flows fast, and where it does not know, between mountains into the wild world, it flows, does not return, end quote. It was a song about the unrestrained exuberance of youth itself. You'll be able to hear it a bit during the next um, intermission. Now, the other song, Chervona Ruta, was and still is one of the most famous Ukrainian songs in the world. It is so popular, it is now considered a Ukrainian folk song. Ivasyuk wrote both of them in 1970 while studying medicine, so I guess he just got bored or something. He was inspired by a book of poetry by Voldemir Hrytyuk, who wrote a collection of kolomekas about local folk songs in the Prikarpatia region. Chervona Ruta, or Red Rue Flower, was a constant image in those poems, but Ivasyuk was puzzled because the Ruta flower was actually yellow, not red. Now, this was because of the local legend that says on Ivano Kupala Day or on the eve of July 6th or our summer solstice, the Ruta flower will turn red, and if a girl finds this plant, she will be happy in love. It's a major tradition, and my God, do you enjoy it. Now, this song's popularity was due, yes, to the melody, but also due to the very words Ivasuk sang. It was a song expressing love for a girl, but also for his Carpathian mountains. Quote, I see you in my dreams. In the green forest, you come to me along forgotten paths, and you don't need me to bring you a flower of hope because you entered my dreams a long time ago, end quote. The imagery was what caught people. The clear water, the blue mountains, the forgotten paths along green forests. All of these capture what the Carpathians are. Pure beauty. And you'll hear that song at the end of this episode. But back to Ivasyuk. Now, after that performance, both songs absolutely exploded in the Soviet Union. In May 1941, the text and notes to Chervona Ruta were published in Ukraine. And in August... The song got its very own music video, which was filmed in Yeremche. 
It starts Sofia Rotara as a charming Hutzel girl who meets Vasil Zinkevich, a Donbass miner who travels to the Carpathians for a trade union. Now, this was more of a short film than a music video, but whatever. Now, due to the popularity of this song, it was chosen to be one of the finalists in the Soviet Union's Pres Presnya Goda, or Song of the Year, which was this weird pseudo competition sort of for song of the year. And I say pseudo because winning wasn't a part of socialist ideology. And so every finalist was considered a winner. You don't want to be too bourgeois capitalist about a song contest now, do you? I don't know. Um, now, the recording of this event actually took place on December 22nd, 1971 in the Osta Ostankino television studio in Moscow. And Ivasuk initially was only there as the composer of the song itself. But at the last minute, his manager, Levko Dutkivsky, decided that Voldemort also needed to be on the stage, alongside Nazar Yaremchuk and Vasil Zinkevich. You can actually see that it was a last minute decision because Ivasuk um, is the only one of the trio not wearing a Hutzel outfit. It was Voldemort's voice, but also musical composition, that drew an encore performance. Because it was he who arranged the entire orchestra, where the obi, oboe, oboe or obi, I don't know actually how to say that name, or how to say that word. Uh, oboe, flute, and violins would sit, would sit to bring out the best out of, the, out, of the, out of his melody. Now, the concert was aired on January the 1st, 1972, on the all-union television and tore through the USSR and the entire world. Ivasuk was now a well-known composer who began a whole genre of Carpathian pop music. A year later, his other song, Vodohrai, would become another finalist in this Song of the Year contest. His success showed that Ukrainian folk songs can be sung in Ukrainian and can be popular among the whole Soviet Union. And obviously, this meant it was now dangerous to the Soviet Union, because unless it's Russian, it's a threat to their national security. So in 1972, Ivasuk transferred to the Lviv Medical Institute and also entered the Lysenko Conservatory, and there received his doctor's diploma and began his postgraduate studies at the Department of Pathophysiology. At the conservatory... He first studied uh, under the composer Anatoly Kos Antonovsky and Leszek Mazepa. Between his studies and his composing, he also took part in international, well, among the communist states international song contests like Sopot 74 in Poland, worked on the play for the music, or sorry, worked on the music for the play, The Standard Bearers by Oles Honchad. In 1977, his album Songs of Voldemort Ivasuk, performed by Sofia Rotara, was released. In 1978, he participated in the all-union competition of young composers. But during all of this, his family was by his side. His parents sent his younger sister Oksana to Lviv, and later for student vacations, and there the two siblings went to theaters and concerts together. He would also take his sister on vacations with him, and especially loved going to Nouvelle Suite, where they vacations as they always did. Quote, Asceteric, ascetically, a minimum of food, bread, potatoes, tomatoes, tea, mussels, and fish that we catch. Volodya, as always, swam a lot, often hiked in the mountains. I remained alone. 
and sometimes we spent three or four hours underwater. Volodya filmed the underwater kingdom with a movie camera. We went down quite deep. I was freezing, but I tried not to get nervous. Nothing, said my mentor. Be patient. You, um, you will see a completely different deep world. And really, since then, it seems to me that God left a piece of paradise on earth in Krim so that people could see what it was like. In my imagination, the underwater world is an image of paradise with its peace and harmony, end quote. But he always loved his Carpathians. And when Oksana told him that he would take his future bride on some exotic honeymoon, he said he would only go to the Carpathians with her. They would often also visit Vilnius, Riga, Tallinn, together along with Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, where he would take his little sister on private tours of the Hermitage, which included explaining to her all about the French Expressionists. He also took his mother on vacation with him. In 1977, they went to Truskovets together, and then Berdyansk, now occupied by those fuckers, and to Kiev and Khanyev along the Dnipro River. He wanted to give his mother a chance to relax and breathe. While in Khanyev, they visited Tarashevchenko's grave as a way for Ivasyuk to pay tribute to the late bard's genius. However, this would be one of the last vacations Ivasyuk would take because he would be dead by 1979. So that, by the way, is Vodohrai. A song about a waterfall that you sing quicker and quicker the more drunker you are. Now, at the age of 30, Ivasyuk was the king of Ukrainian music. He blended Ukrainian folk songs with Western rock and popularized Ukrainian national music among young people at that time, which I will explain why this is important a bit later. And on April 24th, 1979, he left his home in Lviv and never came back. Now, before we move on, I want to point out Eva Suk's mental state. All his friends said that he knew the immense responsibility and burden that lay upon his shoulders with the music he was creating. But he always remained true to himself and was always very sincere. In that last year of his life, he was focused, restrained, and purposeful. He even began to work on his first symphony. His parents reported him missing with the police. But, well, they did all shit all, basically. A search was conducted from April 27th to May 11th, and then the case was basically just closed. But, a week later, on May 18th, his body was discovered accidentally by a soldier in a so-called forbidden zone 10 miles outside of Lviv. The authorities ruled the death a suicide and officially closed their case. They put forward the argument that because he sought mental health, um, help at the Lviv Regional Psychiatric Hospital that he must have just been depressed and then committed suicide, even though medical notes from the hospital indicated that he was actually in very good mood and he was um, A-OK to start classes at the conservatory. Never mind that Ivasuk himself complained to friends about being followed by the KGB for months or that there were eyewitnesses that said he was driven off in a KGB car or that those who saw his body said there were clear signs of torture, eyes gouged out, fingers broken, and he was covered with lacerations and bruises. 
His chest was pierced by branches of a kalina, the national plant of Ukraine. The authorities blamed the owls, actually, for that one. Some said it was a Visuk's girlfriend who murdered him and then got there her KGB friends to cover it up. Others suggested he had a mental breakdown at a concert in Romantik, but most of his close friends always stressed that he was murdered. Now, I'm going to jump a couple of decades uh, to 2009, when the Office of the Prosecutor General of Ukraine reopened a criminal case into the composer's death. Obviously, this was more symbolic than anything since you wouldn't find any real perpetrators. <laughs> Ten years later, on June 13th, 2019, the Kiev Research Institute of Forensic Science conducted their own experiments. Experts recreated the crime scene. In a forest, not from from where he was found, on a similar tree with a similar size, in a man who... Um, who was found who had a similar build, age, and height and weight as Eva Suk. He could not climb up that tree, tie a knot, and then commit suicide. Not without someone's help. Here is additional information from that investigation. Quote, in addition, the experts also examined the clothes and shoes of the victim. According to the photos in the crime uh, in the ca- in the case file, the description of the items, the inspection, and the inspection minutes. After all, if a person had climbed a tree, there should have been traces of that tree on his shoes, on his clothes. Meanwhile, the inspection minutes stated that there weren't, there weren't any, end quote. The investigation found that in order for Eva Suk to have died that very specific death, there would have had to be about two to three people involved. His funeral was held on May 22nd, and around 10,000 angry mourners gathered there. They included members of the Ukrainian Helsinki group, Petro and Vasil Sichko. A day of protest was announced by Ukrainian students in Lviv, who didn't go to their classes and gathered the composer's gravesite for three weeks after his funeral. Poems and articles about Eva Suk became circu- began circulating among the Ukrainian Asamistat, which is like a secret underground self-publishing of the time. His compositions were all cancelled after his death. The Soviets didn't want his legacy to spread. Special articles appeared in Soviet newspapers like Leninitska Molot, in which a special correspondent wrote that, quote, worthless nationalistic inclined people had, however, attempted to exploit his tragic death for their own dirty anti-social interests and had spread lies and rumors linking him with bourgeois nationalists, end quote. Those who spoke at his funeral were arrested and the people knew he wasn't the first suspicious murder of well-known Ukrainians. The artist Ala Horska killed in 1970, the mathematician Ivan Vitenko in 1973, while members of the Ukrainian Helsinki group Volodymyr Manakovich and Marko Bielorusets were beaten up in 1979. People weren't stupid, and so the cult of Volodymyr Ivasyuk spread even more. Now, this was also the age of television. And even though the 1960s began a Ukrainian national consciousness, and even though the 1960s there began a national Ukrainian consciousness, uh, specifically listen to episode 42 for more about those 60 years, the vast majority of Ukrainians were actually glued to their TVs. And this medium helped Ukraine become incorporated into Soviet mass culture. This included Moscow-made Russian films and songs. And so many Ukrainian artists turned to the Russian language to popularize themselves in the Soviet Union. 
Sofira Toru, for example, the chick that sang Chirvona Rupta with Iva Syuk, ultimately turned to Russian and became a, Rus- a Soviet pop star. Now, rock music became popular as it represented truth rather than the propaganda that was being put out by the state-controlled Soviet music industry. Vladimir Vysotsky became popular, but was again Russian. Even rock music in Lviv was heavily Russified, well into the 1980s. For example, Yuri Hrykhorian and Oleg Kaletovsky from the bank Kalich performed in Russian in Lviv, because nearly all of Lviv's bands were playing in Russian also. But Soviet Ukraine in the post-Stalin world was this weird little phenomenon in the Soviet Union. It had an urbanized society with a developed economy, and it provided for a national homeland for ethnic Ukrainians. And it was actually considered a very desirable place to live by many in the Soviet Union. It was prosperous. And yet, while Russian was predominant in the western capital of Ukraine, it was also a bit different. But the music of Ivasyuk, which was born after the Second World War, became popular not just among those ex-villagers who were flocking to the urban centers, but also to those urbanized citizens. For example, Maria Kazimira from the suburban village of Krivchitsya, outside of Lviv, remembered absolutely no rock music, but she did remember always liking Eva Siuk. As early as 1971, a year before Chervona hit the Soviet airways, it was actually a very popular song in Lviv itself, with a local newspaper mentioning that a drunken vocational student trying to get into a party at the city's opera theater was loudly singing the song while being taken away by security guards. Ivasyuk became a Ukrainian Beatles, who mixed Carpathian folk scenes, jazz, and rock rhythms that was more popular than Jimi Hendrix mainly because it was eternally Ukrainian and publicly Ukrainian. And so when this musical icon was found dead, many people blamed the KGB for killing him. I mean, this wasn't really all that hard, seeing as the KGB was known to kill people that the state believed to be a threat. And while they didn't exactly prove their innocence when they hushed up witnesses and closed the case almost immediately after his body was found. Those present, as his, those present at his funeral pre, uh, pre, presented the composer with poems and eulogies, which all had a healthy sparkling of accusations against the Soviet system. One of those was presented, uh, one of those who presented their poems was poet Roman Kudlik, whose poem equated Ivasyuk's death with a great loss for Ukraine. Ivasyuk's grave became a pilgrimage site for local students, as one Ihor Dobko explained that would attract graduates who lay flowers and wrote anti-Soviet poems. Two of the most vocal supporters of this anti-Soviet agitation were father and son, Petro and Vasil Sichko, who spooked the cave in the view of party leaders into aggressive actions against them. On June 10, 1979, a month after Ivasyuk's funeral, the Sichkos organized a civil memorial service at his gravesite and took their public public oaths to continue the fight against the enemies of those who killed him and continue to fight until Ukraine becomes free and independent. So, you know, a bit anti-Soviet to say the least. 
Now, this type of nationalist agitation wasn't really anything new for either of them. Petro, the father, was a member of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists and a political educator of the Ukrainian insurgent army during the Second World War. After the war, he created underground student organizations, was arrested numerous times, went through torture in the gulag camps, and was basically spied on for his entire life by the KGB, Vasil, the son, graduated from journalism, but kept on writing those anti-Soviet articles. Now, both father and son were part of the Ukrainian Helsinki group, and both organized that protest memorial service at Ivasuk's grave. The service ended, by the way, with the group chanting, Glory to Ukraine. So, you know, the KGB was pissed. Both were in prison until about 1985, by the way. <clears throat> but the influence of Ivasuk also didn't end. For 10 years after his death, there was a music festival. It was held from September 17th to 24th, 1989 in Chernivtsi and included some of, some of Ukraine's famous music, musicians, including the band Veve, who are very still popular until this day. There were over 500 participants, including singers from Europe and North America. A song was sung to commemorate Ivasyuk, and the final concert was opened with trembitas, a traditional Ukrainian highland horn. People in attendance sang the Ukrainian national anthem and unfurled the blue and yellow flag, which probably wasn't looked kindly upon by the KGB police and Communist Party officials who supervised the concert. It was a very Ukrainian cultural event. It was also attended by Sofia Ivasyuk, uh, Voldemir's mom, who was now riddled by Parkinson's. I don't know if she witnessed how the local police cracked down on any forms of nationalism, including arresting young girls who wore yellow blouses and blue skirts, or attacking Grigory Gongodze, the famous Ukrainian journalist murdered in 2000. The festival, much like the man it was named after, was a revolution for Ukrainian music. Songs performed there became immediate hits. Obscure and local talent became overnight teen idols. Ukrainian music was being admired and more and more now. Audiences were also attracted to the modern stage productions and the festival was sold out and even had a Ukrainian tour afterward. It threw open the Ukrainian musical possibilities. Two years later, in 1991, another festival was held. But this time it was at a time of immense political change. And on the eve of the attempted coup in Moscow, it was organized in Zaporizhia now, linking the democratic opposition of the country to their Cossack past. The main event of this year's, of this year's festival was the performance of Lviv rock group Snake Brothers, when they sang We're the Brothers from Banderstad. Now this band was a prime example of the Ukrainianization that was occurring in rock music at the time. The group were primarily ethnic Russians and Jews who began as a Russian language group. They then uh, turned to Ukrainian music due to the local uh, Lviv Ukrainian slang. And because Ukrainian language groups like Veve were inspiring a new generation of Ukrainian musicians. The group's songwriter, Serhii Kuzminsky, had already written several political protest songs. And so when they performed their latest hit using the half Ukrainian and half German term of Banderstad, it greatly amused the festival uh, listeners. It wasn't accidental. 
since Western Ukrainians, and especially those in Lviv, were always called Banderites or Nazi collaborators by Soviet state officials. And so these youngins use these terms as a sign of rebellion. As William J. Reich explains in his The Ukrainian West, quote, By 1991, being a Banderite was no longer feared or despised as backward. It was considered cool, end quote. And so the audience pulled out their red and black own flags in the middle of the heavily Sovietized city. The festival would be organized every two years and went from Donetsk in 1993 to the Krem in 1995, then Kharkiv and Dnipropetrovsk, and finally in Kiev for three, three straight years, back to Chernivtsi for the 20th anniversary of Yvasyuk's death, then back to Kiev two more times, and finally in Mariupol in 2015, in 2017. Yes, that Mariupol, which has been basically wiped off the face of the earth because Russians are dicks. In 2019, it went back to Chernivtsi for the 30th anniversary of Ivasyuk's death. And finally, in 2021, it occurred in Lviv. Same type of festival, new Ukrainian artists who needed a break into the industry. This festival inspired by a man who loved the nature around him and whose songs threatened the Soviet institution because he took something no one could change, the environment around him, and voiced his love for Ukrainian landscape in his songs. Obviously, the Soviets thought this was like the most evil thing in the world, and I honestly think they did actually kill him for it. If he continued to compose these types of songs that glorified Ukraine's natural beauty, well, Ukrainians themselves could then think they are equal to their Russian brothers in all things culture. Because that's also how the Soviets and Russians roll. Just destroy everything they don't like or feel threatened by. Because they are dicks. And that is it for this episode all about Ukraine's musical genius, Voldemir Ivasyuk. And after the closing remarks, you will hear the famous song Chervona Ruta. The full song. All three minutes of it. Because it's awesome. And now because Russia has decided to invade Ukraine, we need help. Please donate to any humanitarian aid relief you can. I've also posted on my website some suggestions. Please take up the call and ask your local representatives to help Ukraine in any way they can. Send us weapons and get NATO in there and help us kick out those Russians once and for all. Uh, please remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Wander Edge Ukraine. Check out our website, wanderingtheedge.net, for source information and other interesting extras. And if you're listening to me on Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict, please rate and review and leave a weird comment about anything, even any weird historical tidbit that you have about your culture or peoples. And if you're listening on all the other streaming sites, thank you very much. And as always, happy wanderings, my friends, and Slava Ukraini, Yehoyim Slava. And here is the original Chervona Ruta. Солнце руку знайшла, 
Синий. 